Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the terms verbal, nonverbal, and low functioning. Uh, So Scott, this comes up a lot in our trainings. Uh, What do people even mean when they say these words verbal and nonverbal? (laughs) Great question. Uh, It means like different things. There's really kind of no universal understanding of it. Like it's people have different mental models. When we say the word verbal, like there's a whole science of verbal. There's a journal of verbal behavior and verbal can be broken down into like vocal verbal, non-vocal verbal, uh, verbal, uh, expressive, receptive. There's a whole bunch of things. So I'm not going to get into that. I think the main thing what we want to do is focus on the term non-verbal and this idea of what it means and what's problematic with using it. So typically though, when most people say verbal, they mean somebody speaks, but verbal is really much more than that. So the term verbal is not necessarily problematic. It's the term nonverbal that's super problematic when we use it. So one, it means different things to different people. So to some people, it means that they don't speak at all, or they really only speak a few words or, you know, don't communicate at all in any way. Right. And sometimes in training, when this comes up too, I hear people say like, oh, nonverbals, you mean like when they make gestures or movements or things like that. So people hear nonverbal and sometimes they go to that, not just that someone is nonverbal, but they have nonverbal like gestures or signs. So, right. It, it, it means different things to different people. So, so one is it's, I would say it's not particularly a useful term to describe somebody as nonverbal because then we operate on this assumption that you know exactly what that means. So we'll talk about what to use, but in, in a second, I think what's also problematic with the term nonverbal is when typically we hear this forensic interviewers, law enforcement, and again, this certainly doesn't represent everybody, uh, prosecutors, it's more likely to send this case down a trajectory where we're not going to even try to interview this victim, victim or talk to this victim or um, consider them necessarily a viable witness. So what we want to do is we want to move away from this idea of nonverbal. So one, it, it can be problematic because again, this idea of nonverbal conjures up these images. Well, I can't talk to this person. They're not going to be useful and or reliable. It's not particularly useful because it doesn't give us a whole bunch of information. So instead of saying that somebody is nonverbal, what we would want to say is, so if I said to you, oh, this is David, he's nonverbal, you are better off saying to me, okay, great. How does he communicate? Tell me about how he communicates. Well, he's nonverbal. Well, does he speak? Does he have signs or gestures? Does he use a communication device? Exactly. Are there, are there other ways that this person might communicate with us? And my favorite one is how does David get his needs met? Because that's yeah. something if people can say, you know, oh, they let us know that they're hungry or thirsty or have to use the yeah. bathroom. He'll grab your hand and take you somewhere. He'll point. He nods his head. He shakes his head. Right. So do they understand you? Do they use, you know, as you said, gestures or do they have devices? And, you know, a really good question. Is there anything else I need to know how they communicate? So that, that actually is super useful. So when you're describing somebody, just describe what they do. Uh, this is David. He nods his head for yes, shakes his head for no, has a thumbs up sign for yes, uh, has two signs. And other than that, you can't understand a word he's saying when he speaks, but he can understand up to like five-step commands. That is way more useful than 
David's nonverbal. Absolutely. And it's I the thing I like so much about the way that we talk about this and even the questions you just posed, Scott, were they were all strengths based because knowing what a person can do is so much That's more right. valuable to us than finding out what they can't do. Because if all we hear is nonverbal, it leaves us guessing what they could do. Right. So if we get that information ahead of time in this sort of strength based way. It's actually useful for us as, you know, as interviewers or as MDT members where we could say, oh, this person can communicate these things in these ways. So we need to you know, maybe adjust or adapt how we're asking them questions to meet their needs with the ways that they are able to communicate. Right. And, and so not just guessing what they can do, just operating on the assumption what they can't do right. and making this assumption that they're they're not going to be, uh, you know, reliable and or useful in any way because you're not able to communicate with them. So, you know, it's funny. One of the most, um, one of the smartest people on the planet sort of universally agreed with Stephen Hawking. And, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't speak. So it'd be interesting how many people would label him nonverbal or not. Right. So there's various ways that people can communicate, uh, you know, and that's not the only term we get hung up on. And I know you said in the intro, we're going to talk about verbal, nonverbal, and hopefully that's helpful for people. So it's not like, you know, yell at people if they describe somebody as nonverbal, just prompt them to uh, try to understand what they what they mean by nonverbal to make sure you have the same mental model. Right. Don't just accept it and move on, believing that you both understand the same thing because you might have a different idea of what nonverbal means. So ask a few more questions, maybe about what the person can do so you have a better understanding of how they communicate. Exactly. And then this other term, like somebody's function level, like low functioning or high functioning, Again, there's no universally accepted understanding of what we mean when we say low functioning. To some people, that's like they have behavior problems or they don't speak or they have like, you know, high support needs or something like that. So I, I, I think we need to move away from that. And what really is frustrating, and I used to use these terms too, we would say somebody, oh, they have the, the, the function of a five-year-old or the brain of a three-year-old or the capacity of a five-year-old. And I always joke and go, well, how come it's not two or four? You always hear like three, three or, or five. five. Yeah, right. something like that. It's an odd number for some reason. Yeah, you know, I've heard, I've been hearing eight every now and then. But the, the thing is, is it's, it's, it's made up. And the sense is there's no such thing of when we say functions like a five-year-old. And at the very least, there's no universal agreement. And here's what I mean by that. So I taught child development at the university for 15 years, multiple classes per semester. And I still don't remember all the developmental milestones at every age. Are we talking about uh, cognitive milestones? Are we talking about motor milestones, social milestones? If we're talking about motor, we talk about gross motor, fine motor, prehensive. You know, there's all these different things. So when we say functions like a five-year-old, one, it presupposes that I know what you mean by that, and you know what you mean, and that all five-year-olds, quote-unquote, function the same. And we know that there's a broad spectrum of what it is. Now, if you're going to say somebody reads at a five-year-old level or has the language of a five-year-old, that's probably a little bit more grounded in, in some concrete thing that we can agree on. Right. It might be more helpful in communicating with that person that potentially, but still again, putting that, that number on it, like you said, everybody has a different idea of what a five-year-old might function like or communicate like even. Yes. And that also can send the case down a trajectory where like, well, we're not going to talk to this person like, because we're, oh, they're, they're 30 or they're 17 and this idea of they function like a five-year-old. So what we want to do is like we, when somebody says, oh, this is David, he's nonverbal we would want to say, uh, oh, any functions like a three-year-old or a five-year-old, we would want to say, well, tell me more about that. Does he need assistance with activities of daily living like bathing or, you know, dressing or toiletting? And, you know, or, so, or if so, which ones? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how 
does he require assistance? What's, uh, what's his independence look like? What's his best skill sets? What are his support needs? Does he have behavior needs? Those are the types of questions that we can ask when given functions like. And when we're describing somebody, just describe what they, what they can do. And again, that's going to be helpful in an interview or an investigation to know what a person can do or if they have support needs that we do everything we can to make accommodations in the interview to meet those support needs. So what does that look like? Again, from a functional standpoint, right, for us when we are functioning as interviewers, see how I'm using that word? Um, it's, it's just interesting how we can make those accommodations in order to meet people where they're at based on the things they're able to do. The other thing that I don't like about the, the age label, Scott, is that it for someone who is an adult, when we say, oh, they function like a five-year-old, it immediately infantilizes or in our brain sort of sets us, oh, treating this person like a child instead of like a 30-year-old or an adult or whatever age they are. Right. Then we're going to start talking to them in those shitty tones of like, hi, oh, you are, you do. So, you know, and well, I, I affectionately know call the kindergarten teacher voice, which is okay. Maybe when you're talking to kindergartners, but not yeah, adults. That's somebody who's super old uh, or yeah, or a teenager. <laughs> right. You know, um, the other thing that can kind of jumps out at me too here, and I'll, I'll just throw this out here too. When we say those things, it makes me think of when we look at somebody who doesn't speak or is impaired in their speaking or looks different and what we might say is, you know, they, they're, we could describe it as cranial facial anomalies. They, they look different. We make these assumptions about their intelligence. When somebody doesn't speak or doesn't speak well, we assume lower intelligence. I mean, we do this with accents as well. And I've shared this story before. I remember it was one of the courses I had. It was, uh, it was in my doctoral program. It was a course called Non-Parametrics. I honestly have no clue what that means anymore. And I remember the professor comes in. And this is the first day. He walks in. He goes, how y'all doing? My name's Dr. Uh, I can't remember his name. Dr. Brewer, you know, okay. what? Dr. Brewer, if you're listening, I, I hope you appreciate the story. He says, my name's Dr. Brewer. I'm from Arkansas and I don't give a shit. We go do some statistics today. And I remember thinking, holy shit, what am I going to learn from this guy? You know, this, this, this hillbilly hick from Arkansas. It turns out, you know, he was one of the most brilliant professors I ever had. His students, grad students, doctoral students, like the highest paid coming out. He's an amazing individual. So we, we tend to make those assumptions and... It's a default. It's sort of a default that we have. So we have to be super intentional about overriding that and assuming normal intelligence when uh, we see somebody that's impaired in their speaking or looks different. We have to sort of override our initial thought of like, oh, low intelligence. That gets super reinforced when somebody refers to them as functions like a five-year-old or, you know, nonverbal. Right, because it's going to impact our behavior the way that we you know, interpret that person based on that initial reaction is going to affect the rest of that encounter. So your, your point of that intentional behavior of watching our own biases, being cautious of, you know, what, what jumps out when that person walks through the, through the door and then how do we within ourselves acknowledge that that's happened and make sure that we are, you know, addressing the individual as that individual looking for their strengths and making sure we're making adjustments to, you know, accommodate them, whatever that looks like without having those sort of like biases, that infantilization, those other pieces. So there's a lot of things sort of happening automatically in our brain that we don't even realize. So how do we do something about it to make sure we're giving this person, you know, the best shot to, to receive services from us. Absolutely. And, you know, the idea is we want to be as least biased as possible when going into these interviews. 
Well, this was a, a short one, I think, but hopefully the information we provided for you was useful and uh, enjoyable for you. Yeah, so be careful with your use of verbal and nonverbal and low functioning um, because, you know, we all have a different understanding of what they mean and it doesn't necessarily demonstrate what people are capable of. So let's go with that strength-based approach and uh, it'll, I think, help us in communicating with the individuals that we serve. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.